Podcast World, what's up? Chad Belding, This Life Ain't For Everybody. Another episode coming your way right now. We're actually in a remote location. We're in a place we call Almost Heaven. It's up in the area of Darby, Montana, and I am at the home of John and Robin LaMonico. Y'all met John LaMonico through some of our social media hunting in Kansas last year with Mitch Yoder and the crew over there at Kansas Hunts. And he graciously invited us up to his home. We got to do a little backstory on his hunting career, his business career, his family career, his relationship with his beautiful wife, Robin. And we've been going at it hard with uh, photo shoots, video shoots. Got all the kids up here having a blast in the falls, the lakes, the hikes. Uh, They're running around in these little mountains of Montana. It's absolutely gorgeous where I'm sitting And please support the partners and sponsors that take care of us here at The Foul Life and the podcast, which is, again, called This Life Ain't For Everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. Go to nawtc.com and get signed up, please. $300 gets you entered for your chance to qualify and win $50,000 cash money. The title sponsor of the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships is Michael Waddell's Bone Collector. Down there in Booger Bottom, Georgia, they got a heck of event that they're putting on with Wicked Outfitters, Steve Schmidt and Clint Walker up in Kansas, all archery, all the time. Again, $300 to join, to get signed up, 14 regions across America and Canada. It doesn't matter if you're in a ground blind tree stand, spot and stock, take your boots off and sneak up off, sneak up on one of them big old white-tailed, white-tailed buck deer munching on clover. <clears throat> and... um we're excited about it, guys. Keep it sane, keep it ethical, keep it legal, and don't let that money be the driving factor. Just do what you do as a deer hunter, and you will be blessed with that $50,000 cash prize. We, uh, we want to hear from the winner. Good luck to everybody that's in the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Michael Waddell's Bone Collector. Today's episode is also brought to you by all of our friends and family at Oakley and Oakley Standard Issue. Best sunglasses, best eye protection on the market, whether you're snowboarding, skiing, fishing, hunting, shooting just enjoying the rays on the beach on the boat we depend on oakley to protect our eyes and oh how important it is guys start now if you haven't already but try to hunt with them try to uh make sure that your eyes your little pupils are always protected because you'd never ever want to lose your vision just look at the world we get to witness every day as a duck hunter tell me you would want to miss that don't do it take care of your eyes thank you oakley for everything that you do <clears throat> and last but not least Today's episode is brought to you by our friends and family down there in Georgia, again, at Real Tree Brand Camo. Thank you, Bill, Tyler, Mr. Bradshaw, Bill Harris, everybody that is part of the Real Tree family. We've been with Real Tree since 2002. Uh, that's 17 years, guys. That's not a turnaround. That's an awesome friendship, relationship, best camouflage pattern on the market. The new timber wowed us last year in the flooded timber of Arkansas, and we can't wait to put it back on. But we're not done with the Max 5 either. We depend on Max 5 camo to get us through all of our hunts from Canada to the Dakotas all the way across the every flyway in continental United States. So Realtree, Brand Camo, family, friends, and the outdoors, they support so many of our friends and family in this industry, in the TV industry, in the hunting industry. If you guys hunt, you've heard of Realtree, support them just like they support our culture. Again, the best camouflage on the market. Thank you so much, Realtree. So let's get on with today's episode. Again, we're up here at Almost Heaven in Darby, Montana. I'm talking fast because I've had three cups of coffee already with a little bit of an egg frittata, some croissants made by Robin, some strawberries, some blueberries. Last night, we had an amazing steak dinner with some hand-cut beef steaks, grass-fed beef that John got us and we're just living the life up here high on the hog and almost having John LaMonaco how are you today 
Chad, I'm doing just fine, and we're sure happy to see you up here in Montana. I can't believe this place. This place is absolutely gorgeous. What we're this property here is about nine acres, one of your properties, and you've had it. You've lived here for seven or eight years. Seven. That's correct. What what are you, were you thinking when you bought this place? Just like I'm going to have the most magnificent home in the whole state of Montana? Well, not not really. Uh, however, when we uh, drove up, uh, there's a, a big cowboy gate uh, with some huge logs, and the nameplate was burned into a plaque there that said "Almost Heaven." And I said, you know, that's pretty appropriately named. Uh, we didn't know that we were going to uh, actually make a purchase, and uh, we had been scouting around Montana. We looked at several parts of this great state, and uh, we decided that uh, we wanted the southwest corner. Weather here is uh, a little more moderate than it is in the eastern open plains, heavily forested, and it was very interesting the way we discovered the house. We had uh, looked at several properties, and they were all very nice. Uh, some were too close to the river, too much traffic. Some were too close to the highway. And at the end of the day, the fine person that we were working with on our real estate investigation said, I've got one more home uh, that I want you to take a look at. And uh, it uh, uh, frankly was at a bad time of the day. We were tired after driving and I said, well, maybe we'll do that tomorrow. And he said, look, we're close by. I've got the key. And uh, I looked at the statistics, and I said, well, we we have a, a large home in Dallas. And we had talked a little bit about downsizing. I had been in retirement for several years after 53 years of corporate work. So we decided we'd go up. Sure enough, there were some other people obviously looking at the home, and I said, gosh, now we're going to be crowding their their inspection and their tour. However, uh, a lady came out the front uh, door with the, holding a younger child by the hand, and uh, her husband was following her, and I said, well, did you have a good tour? And she simply said, uh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Robin and I walked in the door, and to make a long story short, we each walked in side by side, went about 10 feet. Robin looked to the right, and I looked to the left, and I said, wow, this is pretty nice. Her eyes were really, really active and alive, and she said, wow, look at that kitchen. And I said, well, wait till you see this master bedroom. Long story made short, Seven to ten days later, we closed, and uh, here we are. And all I can say is uh, the name that's on that front gate, almost heaven, very appropriate. No, I agree. And one thing, you know, you meet somebody like you, you're very humble and you do things for the right reason. <clears throat> you don't chase fame. You don't chase financial, you know, success. You have acquired finance freedom from hard work. And I don't think that that kind of life should be, covered or shaded. I think that people have to understand that, you know, you weren't given a head start. You've worked your way up through the ranks. You worked for another company for 21 years. Um, you had odd jobs coming up as a kid in the, in the forties and fifties, you're born in 1930. So, I mean, if anybody's doing the math, you're almost 89 years, you're 89 years old this year. Yes, sir. 
you've worked your butt off to acquire this. You come up here to this beautiful home, leaving Dallas, and what you've done with this place, I don't. It, it, it needs to be shown. People need to see what hard work and living the American dream get you. It's you've done things the right way. You take care of people. You're a man of your word. I'm not afraid to tell people like, man, this is a magnificent piece of property and a magnificent home that's lived in by people that deserve it. And what you've done with it, where I'm going with this, is you came up here and you built an adjoining dwelling, just probably 25 yards from the existing home. And it's almost a dead-on match as far as the logs, the color of it, the way they're cut, the way they're put together. I mean, this is a magnificent creation. A lot of work went into this. And then you take it upon yourself to to tell the story of your hunting career. And when you see this place, you can tell that you have a huge passion for hunting. And you said something yesterday about, you know, your mounts and your hunting heritage here. There's how many mounts on this property? Well, I guess uh, if we were talking about uh, birds and big game, as you well know, I've always enjoyed uh, pursuing big game. I have a real love for wing shooting of all types, particularly duck hunting. So I I think that uh, conservatively we have a couple of hundred mounted birds uh, in the trophy room and in various parts of the house and uh, uh, about a little more number of mounted heads there from different trips around the world and uh, in the United States. So you're saying about almost 500 mounted animals in the property? Pro- probably so. Birds, uh, alligators. Uh, and why Why would you mount so many animals? Why would you care to spend that kind of, you know, have that financial responsibility, plus the maintenance and the upkeep of this many animals why is it? Is it something for you to beat your chest and say, look what I did? Or what does it mean, John? Well, you know, that's that's a, a good, legitimate question. And I don't feel that it's invasive because I feel very strongly and honestly about it. And uh, everyone might have a, a, a different motivation for collecting trophies, either hunting them, collecting them, displaying them. Uh, we're up here in a very secluded area. We're not uh, off the grid or anything like that, but it's very private. And if for any reason I was looking for uh, fame or uh, enhancing my reputation or trying to secure a position, that would be one thing. But the long and short answer to your legitimate question is that I collected and chose to mount these animals to recall and to preserve the memory of wonderful hunting experiences. Uh, uh, The shooting, uh, harvesting, whatever you want to call it, of any animal uh, is not uh, any kind of uh, bloodlust or anything of that nature. It's not done for any reason other than the fact I really enjoy hunting and everything that it offers. Every single animal, I, for some reason, have memories indelibly etched. And uh, by looking at these animals, which I do every single day, I have a great time. I can look at a trophy and see, say, gosh, I remember being with my boys and this uh, hunt took place. We did this. 
the weather was extreme or the weather was just beautiful. And it's just a recordation of pleasant events in my life. And that's the reason why I preserve it in the form of these animals. And you were saying something that really got me was the first bird that you got mounted, you paid $7.50. Tell me that story. Well. And what year it was. I was eight years old, so I I won't do the math for you, but... uh, 1938. That's right. And uh, uh, I I shot a nice green head in Los Banos, California, with a good friend and a mentor, long deceased. And uh, he said, well, you ought to have that... Uh, uh, bird uh, mounted, talk to your dad about it. So uh, I had my green head. I showed it to my dad. He said, well, that's a beautiful bird. I said, well, dad, can I have it mounted? He said, well, you better find out how much it's going to cost. And he says, maybe with your allowance, uh, you, you can have that done. So I went to the taxidermist and told him that was my first duck. And he was a very kind gentleman. He says, well, he says, uh, it would cost you $7.50. And I said, well, I I don't have that money now. I said, I'll have to talk to my dad. And I think maybe they were in cahoots and had had a little talk beforehand. And he said, "Uh, well, he said, "Uh, uh, you could pay me a dollar a week if you can. He says, but let's try to do it a dollar at a time, okay? Well, in a short period of time, uh, I had the bird uh, paid for, and I enjoyed it for many, many years. And the bird still hangs in a country uh, home on a ranch in Texas. A good friend has it, and as I upgraded the collection, sometime I wish I had a couple of those early old mounts back, but... uh, uh, it's a long time, and uh, they've been replaced. Uh, right now, you know, the the price could be somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of plus three hundred to plus four hundred dollars, depending on what you have and how the mount is. So it's been a long way from the seven dollar and fifty cent of mallard mount uh, way back when I was eight years old. Was that your first duck? Yes, that was my first duck, and. Uh, uh, it was kind of interesting the way it came down. Of course, I was an observer, and I, I started in uh, on some dove hunts, you know, recovering birds for my mentor and friend and uh, watching him shoot. He was an excellent wing shooter and uh, very serious about it. And, you know, I learned safety rules from him. And finally, when I had my 410, uh, uh, we... Uh, got to the point, well, it was my turn and my time to shoot the duck. And he said, well, let's let's look for a green head. And I watched him work the call, and the bird landed in the water about, well, I'd say, 25 yards in the decoys. He said, well, now, we don't shoot any ducks on the water. He said, uh, we're going to start here. And he said, I'm going to clap my hands, and I'll be right behind you, and I'm going to stand up. And that duck is going to go straight up in the air, he says. And when he's about five feet up in the air, that's the time to shoot. And I had a, a 410, 2.5-inch shells, number six shot. It was a single-shot topper with a, 
uh, hammer on it. And I recall uh, Mr. Bruno was his name, clapping his hands. A duck flew up, and that, it looked like a big target for me, and I folded it. He said, well, now go out and get your bird. And I had a little pair of, of waders at the time that uh, had been heavily used by his son when he was a kid, so it uh, just uh, turned out to be a wonderful event. I remember it like it was yesterday, and the passion still burns. And this many ducks later, and to see you just got back from Argentina. Yes, You're sir. You're down there wing shooting with Robin. Do yes, you, we... do, does it bother you, John, for somebody like me to, to concentrate? I'm not saying that I concentrate on your age a lot. We have a good friendship. We, we, we've known each other for almost going on two years. I met you at Grant Kuyper's Buck Paradise up in northern Saskatchewan. Does it bother you to have a guy like me be so fascinated with your age? Or is age, is it something that is become an accomplishment to you? Um, I, maybe accomplishment is the wrong word, but I don't dwell on it because I'm sitting here thinking, man, this guy's old and he's still doing it. You are, your mind and, and how sharp you are still. And 89 years old is a full, full life. I mean, you've packed so much into it, meaning your professional career, you've hunted in 31 countries for waterfowl and big game. You've traveled the world with Robin. You've raised kids that are, that are doctors and, and, and you can, we will get into what they do, but you have very successful family. Does it bother you at all? When no, you hear that. Not really, uh, Chad. It's just a number. And uh, I think uh, the philosophy that uh, we uh, put into effect for ourselves has a lot to do with how you feel. Uh, uh, the past, my past has been a lot of fun. I can look back on it. But uh, I and we, meaning Robin and myself, we look to the future. There's an old saying that uh, your values diminish when the past appears more vivid than the future. And that sounds like a trite saying, but there's a lot of people uh, who are very interested in and a priority with them is to talk about their past. Well, I remember when I played football. I remember when I wrestled and I was a champ at that or I, I did this or that. Uh, we look to the future, and I would have to say that uh, uh, I'm a great believer in life that you should make a plan and work your plan, decide what you want to do. And I knew at an early age that I wanted to do everything possible so that I could enjoy hunting at the highest possible level. And that's still a priority with me. It's family and hunting. There's a lot of other things that I'm very interested in and I can talk about and I enjoy but primarily, uh, it's all about hunting, and uh, uh, the age factor uh, only comes into consideration when I realize that, uh, you know, unfortunately, this doesn't go on forever. So I'm pretty well of a mindset that uh, I'm going to do everything possible to get in, work in as much hunting as long as it makes sense. I don't ever believe in uh, having anyone suffer uh, because of my interests or passions. And I'm so fortunate uh, uh, that Robin has uh, learned a lot about hunting. And we all have a hunting partner, be it a, 
uh, one of our younger children or we have a good friend that we've known since our boyhood uh, and they become a hunting partner. Uh, Robin uh, had never fired a BB gun before in her life and uh, I walked her through it starting in with nomenclature, gun parts, vocabulary, heavy emphasis on safety, what a shotgun can do in the way of damage at close range. And she's a very, very good student. She's an intelligent, beautiful gal, hardworking, very serious about everything she does, very athletic. And she got into wing shooting and her stories are pretty interesting, and she talks about her first hunt where she thought she was going to have to give it up because everybody was shooting doves and she was shooting at them. And uh, just in a matter of a few days, uh, she took all the advice that she needed and uh, uh, picked up her confidence, and now she's really an accomplished wing shooter and a whale of a hunting partner. She takes care of all of our details, making flight reservations, trip details, uh, advancing deposits, uh, securing licenses, permits, visas, anything that's involved. So she's a working, functioning partner, and uh, we've shared a lot, a lot of beautiful hunts together. And uh, we've got another one coming up this November uh, we're going to go over uh, to Turkey hunting with my good friend Kankara Kaya of Shikar Safaris. I've been on about, I think, 15 or 17 trips with Khan. So Robin's going to be the hunter on this one, and I'm going to be the observer, and she'll be hunting for Bezor Ibex. So we're looking forward to that and that's just the way we look at the future. We, why, why, why that hunt? Is this a good? Is this going to be her first big game hunt? Well, she's uh, done some shooting on uh, deer and things of that nature, but this would be really the you know first really uh, exotic trophy. Why that? Why that species? Well, the scenery there is very very beautiful, and uh, she's very athletic, uh, and she'll be able to make the climbs and the stalks. I think that's not a problem. Uh, you know, uh, she did four Ironman triathlons, so uh, uh, a four or five mile hike's not gonna uh, not gonna bother her too what much. What about you? Does this bother you at eighty nine years old? A five mile walk in this oh, kind no. of terrain? Well, no, I'm still able to do it. Not wow. with the same not with the same vigor that I was doing it twenty years ago. And I guess if you ask me a question like, well, "Tell me what's one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life." And, you know, I've been through all kinds of business scenarios, and we all have our personal lives that sometimes develop into problems. But by and large, the, the bottom line on that is the toughest thing I've ever had to do is note a physical slowdown in my strength, endurance, coordination. That's just a byproduct, and that's when the, when the number comes in. Someone jokingly told me, and I, I do get you're not the only gentleman that's ever said, uh, gee, how's it feel, you know, to be 89 years old? Somebody said, uh, well, John, wow, you're playing in the fourth quarter, huh? And I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, some of the best games end up in overtime. So when that fourth quarter's over, 
I'm going to go into into overtime. And he laughed about it, and that's just the way I look at it. I want to try to stick around as long as I can for the simple reason, wow, it's a heck of a ride, and I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, you, well, let's not forget what you did this, what, four years ago, we were in Asia, and and you um and you had your um a hunt for which which goat was it? Well, that was a Bokoran Markor was my last hunt. Everybody out there, go Google a Bokoran Markor. That's correct. And look how beautiful and majestic this animal is, and the way the horns grow, and they curl up in like a spiny way. It's almost like you take two horns out of each side of the head and you intermingle them like a ponytail, kind of all the way up. And it's a uh, John has one of these in a full body mount. That's the new world record at Safari Club. Is it the number one in the world? Uh, yes, Safari Club International, and it's uh, it's a world's record uh, that was taken uh, with Con Karakaya. Same guy. Same guy. So this is the this is the one where the terrain is. Well, you you hike for several days to even get to the base of the mountain where these animals live. Is that correct? Well, it's a very remote area, uh, very steep uh, topography. Uh, southern uh, uh, Tajikistan, uh, separated by a nearby uh, river, uh, which is the dividing point uh, between uh, Afghanistan and uh, Tajikistan. Very remote, uh, some beautiful mountains, uh, very sparsely populated, and uh, uh, the terrain could be pretty formidable. That's the best way to uh, put it out, and it was very, very strenuous uh, for me, and there was a time where I could have done it uh, in a lot better fashion, but I did it. But the terrain is so steep that they hand you a rope. And you have to be tied off because well, yeah. if you fall, you're dead. Well, yeah, it isn't a place where if you lose your balance, you could fall, maybe break your leg or something. Uh, you you could fall to your death very easily. Uh, uh, and uh, once a fall commences, you know, and you take that first tumble, you're going to bump your head on something, most likely a rock, and then you go limp and you just roll like a sack. So... Uh, that was uh, an interesting part about the uh, hunt, and as I say, the memories uh, when that animal that's in the trophy room, I look at it, I think it's neat that it turns out to be a beautiful specimen and a record, but the real thing is that I can look at that and remember darn near every footstep and uh, how tired I was, exhausted, uh, uh, apprehensive. Is it, it, <clears throat> is it on shell rock? No, they're large boulders, some the size of a small home. You know, there's a, this is very, So you're kind very, of rock climbing in a rigging system almost with a rifle and a pack on your back. But your footing's there. It's not like you're slipping on shell rock. No, I've seen that kind of terrain. Footing is, pr- is pretty solid, uh, but uh, the uh, incline is so steep that... Uh, How steep? Well... Uh, let's put it, is it straight up more, and down. No, it's not vertical, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's a lot more than uh, forty-five, fifty degrees. You know, really? so, yeah, it's very steep, and uh, once you get up on the top or uh, uh, to some of the more level spots, then you're uh, tra- traversing at pretty high altitude. It's not like uh, a hunt for. Marco Polo, where you're going up in the 15, 16,000 foot level, but uh, 
This is lower. But you've done than, that also. Yeah, well, I did that uh, uh, in uh, the northern part of Tajikistan, the Marco Polo hunt, which is another, you know, very strenuous uh, hunt. And uh, a lot of times, uh, if you're in inclement weather and you're hunting in snow conditions, uh, it's a lot easier because the animals will come lower. But if it's uh, warmer weather, there's a lot of uh, bugs or uh, flies in the area. All the big game animals are up as high as they can to get away from uh, the flies or insects that annoy them. And consequently, the hunter has to go up higher. But uh, the markhor, uh, very beautiful, undoubtedly one of the great game animals in the world. Beautiful. Let me ask you this. how The guy's name is Tahar, your guide? Uh, no, uh, uh, the fellow that organized my trips and was with me is Khan. Khan. And does he go with you? Uh, yes, he does. How old of a gentleman is he? Oh, he's uh, in his uh, 50s, 50s, late 50s. So if he knows you from the previous 15 or so trips on the on the Marco Polo and all over Asia and all of your all of your sheep and goat hunts. Is it normal for an 85-year-old man to go on this hunt when it's, you're <laughs> roping yourself off? Does he know you good enough to say, yes, you can do it? Or in a, in, a, in a normal situation, does he look at an 85-year-old man and say, absolutely not, this is not the hunt for you at this time in your life? Well, uh, he uh, obviously evaluates it and the fact that we've been on several hunts and uh, uh all of my hunts uh, with uh, Khan have been uh, uh, fortunately successful, but more so than being successful, they've been wonderful experiences. And uh, uh, a couple of times he's pointed out places where we were going to go, and I said, wow, is there any chance we could go this way or that way? It looks easier. He said, no, with the wind, we've got to go this way, and if I have to put you on my back... We're gonna get. We're gonna go up there, and of course, I'm half again bigger than he is. And I said, "Well, that's pretty bad." He's offering to carry me up there, but he's never had to do that. But uh, uh, the uh, Markor hunt uh, was certainly uh, one of the most uh, difficult physically that I encountered. Uh, you know, would I do it again? Uh, uh, I would like to continue big game hunting uh, at the pace that I did, but two big factors. One, I've taken just about uh, uh, all of the animals that really interest me, and for me to want to hunt an animal, I want to try to study up on it, learn all I can about uh, what a mature one looks like, uh, uh, what are the approximate sizes, what kind of range do you usually hunt them? Is it a still hunt or is it a spot and stalk? Uh, all of the background is uh, so very interesting and uh, uh, you then have to say, well, now uh, if I harvest this animal, where am I going to put it? So I'm kind of out of space in my trophy room and uh, I don't want to... Uh, uh, be redundant. I, I'm still enjoying mule deer hunting a great deal, and I enjoy looking for mule deer in the 200-inch uh, range. And uh, between some big game activity and a lot of wing shooting, 
we've got a pretty busy schedule. I think we already have seven or eight trips scheduled for this fall. But, but if I said, John, you, you have to do one more big game hunt, what would you choose? In America, it's a lot of people, we have a lot of white-tailed deer hunters in this country. The mule deer is probably the most difficult sought-after trophy. I, that's kind of an opinionated statement by me, but I also feel that it's very hard to kill a trophy mule deer in America when you start talking about a 200-inch mule deer. Um, and that's, you know, a 180-inch mule deer is a trophy. A 165-inch mule deer with a bow is a trophy. But what would it be? Would it be one of the, Would it be over in Asia? Would it be with Con? Would it be in the mountains of Wyoming or Montana or Idaho? Would it be a bear? What would it be? Well, that's, that's a real good question. I've uh, been to Africa a few times, and uh, uh, I prefer the mountain game in uh, other parts of the world, all the way from Alaska down to Mexico for desert sheep. And then uh, uh, I enjoyed hunts in Central uh, Europe and then in Mid-Asia for uh, uh, wild sheep and wild goats, uh, uh, Russia for some bear and moose. But I think uh, my bucket list would include uh, uh, probably Mountain Inyala in Ethiopia, which is a beautiful trophy, or uh, Lord Derby uh, Eland in the Cameroons or Central Africa in that, that area. Those are two trophies that I would have liked to add. They're both large animals, beautiful animals, and uh, I just really don't have much more room for them. And but you, you have not harvested either one of those? No, I have not. There's a lot of animals that uh, I've not uh, hunted. Uh, sometimes. Well, there's not a lot, John. <laughs> well... <laughs> There's there's several, you know, you can always uh, build up enthusiasm, but those are a couple that I wish I probably would have uh, planned for those earlier. And uh, it's kind of funny because uh, I uh, uh, had a, a couple of moose hunts, and uh, a moose is a lot of fun to hunt and to call in and to see at close range, and it can be a lot of work. And I always said uh, in my younger years when I was primarily hunting uh, sheep, uh, I said, well, when I get a little older, I'll probably go out and get a couple of nice big moose. And then when I finally got a couple of them, I realized it can be an awful lot of work, like, like all of it, you know, packing out a moose and bringing in all the meat. Uh, uh, that's a lot to put on your back. And... Uh, uh, I remember spending uh, three days with the guide. He was carrying uh, 80 pounds of moose meat, and I was carrying about 40 pounds. And uh, we were walking in the in the tundra up there in Alaska, and I said, "Wow, I don't know about this moose hunting." So all of these animals provide, you know, different challenges. Uh, it's all fun, and uh, I urge anyone that. Uh, is really interested in hunting to, you know, study up on what you're going to hunt, learn as much about it as you can, and uh, just tell yourself that you might have an unsuccessful trip. Uh, people always ask me, well, gee, don't you ever have a bad hunt? And I said, no, not really. I said, I've had many unsuccessful hunts, 
but there's still an awfully good time. You can learn, see a lot have of you gone over things. to Asia or it's one of these destination places and, and struck out and not come back uh, home with, uh, a, with an oh, animal? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I have one that I'll share uh, with you. Uh, I've taken uh, uh, some really nice uh, Ovasamanaman and our galleys in Mongolia, and uh, it's one of my you know, more precious trophies along with the Markors and uh, I went over on a very special trip to hunt sheep, and uh, I think it's a, a good little story because uh, it was a special area. We got there, and we found there was a lot of infiltration of uh, local herdsmen and livestock. The game was in short supply, maybe due to some poaching, uh, which is a very common thing in a lot of countries, particularly at that point in uh, time, and uh, uh, we just didn't see much. And I was pretty disappointed, and we finally, uh, towards the last two days of the trip in Mongolia, saw four rams, and uh, one of them was big, and we uh, tried to make a stalk on them, and when we... Uh, got up to the spot where we thought we'd look over the top and find them below us. We saw where they had slipped out on us. Maybe they heard us. Maybe we were spotted. Maybe they scented us. But a huge ram was in that bunch, and they stopped at a little over 420-some-odd yards that I checked in my rangefinder, and... Uh, all that was visible on this ram as the rest of them had turned the corner was his beautiful head and neck and just a little bit of of his shoulder area. And it was a shot that I normally uh, uh, would, would not have taken. And uh, I knew that the hunt was virtually over. And the sad part about it is uh, I shot and I missed. And uh, that was it. There was nothing else. It was a miss. Uh, it was a doable shot. It was the only shot. I turned around and uh, resumed, I guess, about 15,000 miles of travel and uh, I came back and reported to the other hunter that I had seen a dandy ram. And uh, I told him where it was, and I said there weren't a lot of sheep. I didn't see much. I said, but he's a dandy. And I didn't miss it too much. I said, it's certainly a 60-inch ram. It was beautiful. And uh, he went back a few weeks later. That was the second trip. And he was able to take that ram, and it turned out to be a beautiful, magnificent 62-inch ram. Uh, he had it mounted up. We talked several times, and he said, gosh, I'd sure like you to come up to Colorado uh, and see that ram. It, it's a beauty. Thank you so much for sharing all that information with me. Uh, as uh, luck would have it, a tragedy occurred, and uh, just a few months after he, uh, probably six months after he uh, uh, had taken the sheep, had it in his house, he was traveling to another hunt, hit some bad weather conditions in the mountains, and uh, was killed in an auto wreck. 
early morning. And, you know, as sad as that was and uh, uh, the disappointment in my not getting the ram was overshadowed by my happiness that, wow, he at least had the great satisfaction of taking a wonderful, magnificent trophy and at least for a short while, he was able to enjoy it. So those are the kind of memories and the thoughts that are generated. And all of that, to me, by far, is more important and supersedes the fact that I missed a shot. So I didn't have... And what was the name of the species, John? That's the Mongolian argali called Ovis amen amen. Ovis amen amen. Right, that's the... Mongolian argali. Yes. And is that a big curl like a Marco Polo? Uh, Well, it's much tighter and heavier called... Uh, Have you taken one? Uh, Yes, I've got, uh, I believe, uh, three. Was it before or after that trip that you took That was before. But this was supposedly going to be the culmination of the best possible trip, an area that hadn't been hunted. And, you know, that happens sometimes, be it uh, bird shooting, waterfowl hunting particularly, or big game. Uh, We as uh, hunters and outdoor enthusiasts we can't control the weather and we certainly can't control any migratory habits of birds or the patterns developed by big game it just doesn't always work out that way but uh, with careful planning there's not a lot of reasons why you should have a bad trip have you ever tried to add up your air miles uh, no, I haven't added up the air miles or the dollars. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty clean liver and I don't have any uh, highly wasteful uh, habits. Uh, uh, not that I'm a clean liver by any by any shot. I've had a lot of great experiences and good times, but, uh, you know, you, you can't take it with you. And uh, uh, hunting, you know, has changed it uh, has always been a a very special sport uh, that requires uh, uh, an expenditure because it involves uh, good specialized equipment and usually travel so those two put together mean a pretty good price tag but uh, with uh, the uh, progress and general inflation throughout the world standards of living have improved uh, it's now a pretty big financial undertaking, and uh, I'm glad that I have quite a bit of that under my belt because it would be a, a difficult task to complete in this day and age. It is that, and there are a lot of very famous uh, hunters who have uh, pursued uh, uh, hunting to a far further degree than I have, and in your own case... You know, as you say, this life ain't for everyone, and I like that motto, and uh, it uh, stuck with me, and it's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, uh, that's why I was, uh, frankly, interested in talking to you. I said, gosh, here's here's a guy that has uh, done this all of his life, and he's doing it every day, and uh, you have a strong work ethic that's dedicated to the hunting fraternity, and uh You've been a big contributor to it, and uh, 
I'm just uh, very pleased that I've had the opportunity to have you visiting with us up here. It's secluded. I have 99% of your attention or 100% when it's needed. And uh, that just doesn't happen every day. So this is a really uh, very special thing for me. And it's an honor. And I uh, uh, appreciate uh, uh, participating in your program. It's just oh, that simple. Yeah. And it's a big honor for us to meet an individual like you and have you, you know, appreciate and, and like what we do as far as the programming and the production and, and the things that you've, you know, you've been very open about and what you appreciate with what we do. So we're humbled by it. And it's, uh, that's why I'm so stuck on, you know, like the passion of somebody that's done it. Like you just said, you went to, and, and hunted that species in Mongolia three times and harvested three. And then you, this culmination hunt, you were unsuccessful on your friend, you gave good advice and gave him hints on where he was. Like most hunters don't do that, but you know, you, you went back and said, Hey, this Ram's at least 60 inches. He harvests this Ram at 62 inches. That's a good way to be. You know, you, you, you give back, you, it's not an ego thing for you. You'd rather see somebody succeed instead of talking behind their back or knocking them down. And I think that's a big lesson to learn in life that your success is in my opinion, because you live life like that and you don't, you don't, you know, down people or try to up one up them all the time. And you're always there to help. And that's what I've seen in you and your wife, Rob, and you guys have opened your doors to us. And it's, it's, this is a special place to be invited into. So we appreciate it also. Well, thank you for the comments. And, you know, uh, uh, all we can all do in life is do our best and follow our dreams. And I I believe that, uh, you know, you don't have regimentation in every phase of your life. But I think it's wise to make a plan and follow your plan. And I knew from a very early age that uh, I wanted to do a lot of hunting. And I used to fall asleep at night, uh, you know, looking at hunting literature that was available. And back in the days of my teen years and everything, uh, uh, there weren't uh, a lot of people hunting to the degree they are today. Uh, It was just different. And I remember looking at various trophy room photos, and I said, gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Slowly and over a period of many years, I was able to have my own trophy room, and I can honestly tell you that it may, may seem obsessive, but I enjoy my trophy collections and my memorabilia of uh, hunting and uh, wildlife experiences every single day. Uh, we have a lot of things interspersed throughout the house. It's not like a museum, but uh, uh, we do have the trophy room, and I can go down there. Sometimes it's for five or ten minutes. Sometimes it's for a couple of hours. And I can just sit there, have a cup of coffee, or relax, or uh, have a good friend that comes up to visit us, talk about hunting. And it's still a passion for me. And uh, I don't know what keeps the fires burning like that, but uh, I'm already looking forward to We just came off of uh, 15 days of hunting in Argentina, and I'm already excited about, well, here, you know, it's just around the corner, and before long we'll be up probably in the Canadian provinces, you know, hunting ducks and geese, and we've got some 
good spots that we're investigating this year for even more hunting, and uh, it makes it nice to have that on your calendar. Why do you like the duck hunt? Do you like the quail hunt, first of all? Do you like the pheasant hunt? Does that, does that oh, like you say, you always say that, turn your crank? Oh, does, yeah. does being behind a good pointer and, and seeing a rooster fly up oh. and hearing, your, you know, hearing that yeah, word rooster? I like, I like it all. I really do. And when I was a kid, you know, I started out with BB guns and uh, 22s, sh- shooting shorts and things like that. I have a, my first gun, a, a Winchester Model 01 single shot left to me by my granddad, and uh, gosh, uh, I was uh, uh, shooting that up until a couple of years ago, and then I said, well, gee, I've been missing a couple of shots. I don't know what's going on because it was a highly, highly accurate gun, and and I found out that the reason why I was missing a few shots, almost all the rifling is out of it, and it's over 100 years old, and I have that you know, in in the house here, and uh, I look back on it, and I said, I remember when I wasn't big enough to really hold that. My dad had to be behind me and help me hold this little tiny twenty-two rifle. It was just too heavy, and uh, I shot it for years and years. Predators, rabbits, squirrels, crows, anything that was legally uh, available. I whacked with that 22, and then from there to the 410 shotgun, and then a 16 gauge, and probably a pivotal point in my wing shooting was a friend of the family said, "Well, gosh, your boy's just nutty about shooting shotguns. That I've got a double barrel he can have or use as long as he wants," and so they handed me a 30-inch double barrel with two triggers, and wow, I I fired that a few times and couldn't hit anything, and I said, oh, I said, I don't know what's going on here. So I kind of phased out of the double barrel and uh, went to a, an Ithaca Model 37 Featherlight pump, and that's when I started hitting things a little bit better and having more success, and from there, it just went on. Uh, today, I'm kind of a big Benelli fan. I had one of the first uh, Benellis that came into Texas, uh, just you know, with a wood stock, and then I went to the to the uh, uh, synthetic black black stock, and then from there to you know, all the way to Benelli two, and now Super Black Eagle three, which is really. A wonderful improvement over the other models, and uh, plan to get it cranked up here in uh, just a few short months. And we'll so you 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 have a different look on your face, though. To me, I'm I'm reading into this is that when you talk about ducks and geese, it seems to me that you get a different feeling that overcomes your body or your psyche. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, personally, I feel that it's the best. I know that it's, to me, what it means, and 
and I like to hear people say I like it all. It's hard to like it all, to do it all, to be successful at all, or even be, you know, pretty consistent or good at all of it, because a lot of it's all different. Um, there's, there's so many things that can go into different applications of hunting to become successful. You've become successful in a lot of the different areas, whether it's big game, whether it's North American wild sheep grand slams, whether it's, you know, world records for Safari Club International, um, you've owned and operated your own waterfowl properties, your own outfitting services in Texas, in Alberta, in Oklahoma. It just, when I talk to you, it seems like you get a different personality or a different feeling or the way you exemplify when it comes to waterfowl hunting. It just seems like it's different to you. And I don't know if I'm reading it right, but is it, am I on to something there? Do you, do you, do you hold it in your heart a little bit different than a pheasant hunter, a quail hunter? Absolutely. You're a hundred percent accurate. I didn't think I was that transparent, but uh, I think uh, the sheer fact that uh, waterfowl offers so many different challenges that are really a sight to see, you know, the shooting is a big factor and, I don't minimize that. It's a big factor with me, but uh, I love to see the birds uh, working, flying, calling. I like to watch good duck work, a uh, dog work on a duck hunt, which can be very, very entertaining. Uh, I, uh, I like to see the preparation and how it pays off. I, you know, I'm a great believer that uh, concealment and a lack of uh, Movement is a big, big ingredient uh, in waterfowl hunting. You've got to be well hidden, and you can't have a lot of excessive uh, movement. Uh, these birds have great eyes, and I think when you do these basic things correctly, uh, you're going to have good success. But uh, you're 100% correct. Uh, uh, waterfowl uh, hold a very special spot in my uh in my hunting career very special so you can you can have your crosshairs on a marco polo ram that is a magnificent i mean it's one of the most magnificent animals to look at the the terrain they live in be in the mountains of asia with with one, another species in your crosshairs after you climb to fifteen thousand feet but you're telling me that a little pintail or a little green-headed mallard duck over uh, maybe a slough in Montana does it just as much if not more for you well yeah it, it really does it's just different it's kind of like a, a dessert freak you know ice cream is wonderful a, a great uh, peach cobbler is wonderful you know some you like better than others and at different times I can honestly say that uh, I've really never burned out on any phase of hunting, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go tomorrow morning, you know, if it's time. I don't have to work up uh, my enthusiasm to say, gosh, I'm going to go hunting. When I know I'm going, I'm into it, you know, heart and soul, and I'm going to give it my best. And uh, uh, as I said, I'm just real fortunate that uh, uh, Robin is enjoying this great passion with me, and uh, that means we can take as much of our time as we like to to do this. But there's also an argument that says that if you have been able to experience the destinations and the hunts and the experiences of uh, that you have, 
you know, all over Africa, all over the world for big game or pheasants or quail in Georgia, it could have very easily happened to where you went duck hunting and you got frostbite or you got cold or you just said, you know, this isn't for me. Um, but something, there's something in, in your, in your psyche that, that doesn't, that's telling me that it means more to you than a lot of the other styles of hunting do. I'm not saying that you're burnt out on any of them. I'm not saying that you wouldn't jump up and go to Mongolia tomorrow. I'm just saying that if that there's something about duck hunting, what is it? Why do you enjoy waterfowl hunting? Is it the species? Is it the the camaraderie? Is it camp? Is it is it the 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 level of difficulty that it goes into becoming a successful waterfowl hunter what intrigues you about ducks and geese well you know i i think it's so multifaceted you can't put your finger on any of it because at different times different aspects come into play you know you can be in a snowstorm and gosh you say well, nothing's flying and all of a sudden you can have clouds of birds deciding We've got to get food in us in this cold weather, and you can have a magnificent shoot. And uh, uh, you know, you you could say, "Well, so miserable." I've been with people say, "Hey, listen, with this weather, I'm interested in getting back to the lodge, or let's go back to the ranch right now and get some hot coffee." Well, you know, I always like to say, "I'm not out here for the coffee and cake because I'm, I'm pretty serious about it." and uh, I just love to see. I like the sounds, the sights, uh, the chain of events. And I've mentioned good dog work in the field is good. Good calling is is fun. You feel great when you turn a big flock of birds and you fool them completely. And all of a sudden, 25 birds are 25, 30 yards away from you. And the decoys, they've come from... A half a mile away in the stratosphere and you've brought them down into shooting range uh, it's a pretty thing the species are all beautiful in their own way and uh, uh, I often wish that uh, gosh uh, wouldn't it be nice if these birds could uh, get up and say well let's do it again I have uh, uh, no bloodlust like boy I want to get them and kill them uh, I, I like possessing them in my spirit, if that makes any sense, you know, and that's why I have these mounts. I look at them and I said, boy, is, you know, I remember when I shot my first big canvas back and I, I do remember all these things. Why? I don't know, except that it's been terribly important for me to, to do this. I don't know why. Uh, uh, my dad, uh, uh, had a jewelry store in a beautiful uh, town in Monterey, California. And across the street, there was a, a small general grocery store which, with a butcher shop that processed game. And as opposed to being over in my dad's shop, I was spending most of my free time after school if I wasn't playing sports uh, over in the butcher shop admiring the freezers full of uh, uh, birds and deer that were taken by hunters. And at an early age, I probably asked my mentor and good friend every possible question about a duck. If these are both widgeon, how come this one looks this way? And I learned about eclipse plumage and 
why the hens are drab colored uh, and the males are gaudy uh, and why there's no good-looking birds in there today, the fact that it was the early part of the season and they were in eclipse, and all of that just added up, and all I knew is I wanted to grow up and be one of the guys like my mentor that could call the ducks, set up the blind, the decoys, and you know my jobs would be, well, bring these sacks from the truck over to the levee here and I'll put them in the boat or we'll carry them out in the marsh and uh, take this uh, machete and be careful but uh, cut some brush about three feet long and bring it over here and you know so I took part in the whole program and it's kind of become second nature to me and you know there's uh, it was such a big thing for me to be handheld and brought into uh, uh, the waterfowl hunting uh, by a real veteran, uh, I've taken a great satisfaction in bringing Robin into it. Now she says, gee, I, I see, I got some birds at nine o'clock, says, I think they're divers. I said, are you sure? She says, yeah, yeah, they're pretty low and they've got a real fast wing beat flying a straight line. And the next thing I hear, she says, gee, were those widgeon? I said, yeah, they're right. I said, but they weren't talking. She said, well, I could see they had real short necks, it looked like. And it's a, I derive a lot of pleasure out of sharing, you know, some of the knowledge that I accumulated and seeing other people, young people. And I think that that's going to be the salvation of, of hunting. We've got to bring along young people because, you know, the numbers don't lie and nobody's here forever. And we've got to have youngsters that are going to be interested in this or it will it will dry up on the line and when you're talking about bringing new blood into the sport and i've seen several of your photographs drawn in your books and in your personal photo albums here as well as your stories about youth your own kids you know friends kids kids that would come to the camps that you would host and then you have robin who is a woman, you know, in her, in, I don't even know how old Robin is, but she's not, you know, she's not 20, she's not 15, and she's obsessed with waterfowling and wing shooting, and she got into it later in life. Bringing new people into the sport of the lifestyle, I don't like saying sport, but the lifestyle and the culture of waterfowl hunting. In your opinion, is there a right way to waterfowl hunt? And, and the second part of that question is, Assuming there is a right way, and you know, I don't know what your answer is going to be, but do you look down on other ways that waterfowl are harvested? Meaning, is it okay to sneak up over a levee and blast a bunch of birds in a jump shoot? Is it okay to pass shoot a bird at 70 yards just because you think your shotgunning skills are on par? Or is there a right way to teach the sport of calling and concealment and decoying and harvestable 15 to 30 yard shots, dog work, all of the things that you've described previously? Or do you take such a passion in it to where sometimes I find myself almost on a soapbox looking at jump shooting or pass shooting as almost unethical and I want to see it done the right way? Is that fair to say that you feel that way? Or are you saying, hey, as long as you're out there doing it, do what it takes to be, you know, to get into the sport? Well, you know, that uh, I'm not being redundant here, but those are awfully good questions, and there's no simple answer to it. Uh, uh, I would respect anything anyone did as long as, you know, it was uh, legal and uh, it wasn't obnoxious, didn't hurt anyone else. Uh, 
uh, shooting a high bird, uh, uh, if uh, you possess the skills to hit it, I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, jump shooting, if that's the nature of the terrain, uh, it's uh, just like life. You know, there's some people that are vegetarians, some are carnivorous, uh, uh, some people like sweets, some people like wine, some don't. Uh, as long as it doesn't interfere with anyone else, I'm very, very liberal about that. And I've probably done all of these things that we're talking about. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, when you're really down to it and you have full control, what is the dinner you'd really like? I might say, well, gee, I'd like to have a porterhouse steak and a shrimp cocktail. And somebody else might say, gosh, I'd like to have a, a nice uh, Asian dinner. Uh, they're they're all good. There's a lot of different tastes, but I think uh, a lot of satisfaction is derived when you see people following the the lead or the example that you set up. Uh, speaking of the younger people, uh, I've had the pleasure there. I hunted uh, about 29 years up in northern Alberta in a large Mennonite community. And uh, I, I had an operation up there that I managed for a while. And I subsequently, uh, when the owner passed on, uh, uh, owned that place. And we shot for 29 years. And uh, quite often there'd be five or six kids that would, you know, play. Say, Boy, Mr. John, I'd like to come out there and, and, and watch you do this. And uh, I started taking some of these kids up when our guests would go home or there was free time and I'd have as high as seven or eight kids and I'd put them in the blind and I remember uh, I had a couple of young old guys next to me and one guy turned to his father and said he's talking to him and I had been calling in some geese and uh, a lot of these children I know I can think of two of the boys who tagged along they're outfitters now and uh, it was just hard for me to believe that because they were, you know, seven and eight-year-old kids, and uh, they would ask if it was their turn to go out and pick up the geese. So I'd have them running through the decoys. Okay, hurry up and come back in here because more birds are coming. And these kids took to it, and it was a nice form of entertainment, and I'd show them all the parts of the birds and how big the wings were and how you could tell what they were eating or if they were eating. And uh, it's very satisfying to bring in new blood. And I, I do uh, strongly feel that uh, we have to take the time to uh, cultivate young people in the sport because otherwise, uh, uh, you know, just longevity is going to take a lot of people out of it. And then who fills the void? And if there's no voice to the hunting fraternity or particularly the waterfowl segment of it, uh, it could have bad results because other people may say, well, gee, there's not enough of money to support the conservation factors. And, you know, when we uh, sell licenses and we uh, have duck stamps, uh, that's, that's what keeps this whole thing going. So... Am I reading into your answer of saying that you feel that the right way to teach kids or new people, though, is 
the traditional way of waterfowling with hiding and calling and concealment? I yeah, mean, I hiding think, and calling and, and decoying? And, you know, it, it, that's not all of it. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, you have to see what uh, the habitat dictates. Some people uh, uh, wouldn't have the equipment, the time, or the finances, or the guidance when they're younger, and uh, they're... They might have a lot of fun. I know I had a lot of fun walking the river bottoms, uh, jump shooting, and I learned how to have a pair of binoculars and look down the river a half a mile to see if there's any birds. And I said, well, i got to get down to that willow patch in there. There's birds under there. And uh, uh, that was very sporty and uh, fun. And sometimes it was successful, sometimes not successful. Uh, uh, I... Uh, wouldn't think uh, uh, that uh, anyone that did that was doing a bad thing. It's just a different phase of it. You know, like I say, it's like selecting a dinner. But I think to derive the uh, maximum benefits and to uh, uh, enjoy the sport to a fuller degree, doing it correctly, building a blind, uh, having a nice decoy spread, uh, uh, being able to call or understand how it works. That's all part of the equation, and uh, it's uh, uh, something that uh, if you can make it a, a pleasant experience for young people, they like it. And you make it pleasant by showing them what they need to do and how to do it and how nice it is when it works and seeing to it that they have warm enough clothing so they don't get out there and say, Oh, boy, I'd never want to do that again. I almost froze. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, No, you, it's very serious. The comfort level and the confidence level in those first few hunts, and that's that's kind of where I was going with my question is, I, you know, I grew up doing the same thing, you know, in the mountains of Nevada with, with chucker birds or mule deer of, of learning different approaches and different tactics of becoming successful. Chucker hunting, you should have a really, really highly trained pointer. And that will find the birds and keep them on lockdown on a good point. I don't, I couldn't tell you how many chucker hunts I went on with just me and hoping that I got lucky and one would jump up within range. And then you kind of just graduate and there's different levels of it to where now, well, maybe I do save up and I get a, I get a Wiesler, I get an English pointer. And then I do save up and I get a better shotgun or I can afford the better ammo or <clears throat> some of it's gaining access to different mountains, learning public areas a little bit more, learning how to read a map with today's GPSs and stuff. You know, you, there's different levels of graduating to, and, and in waterfowling, there is, there's this jump shooting and then there's the, well, there's the shotgunning part of it. So you might challenge yourself on longer shots. And then I think when you start to get to that point of the power and the majesty of those birds and what they can do, if you let them hunt you up, and you develop patience for them within your instincts of reading their body language, their posturing, you know, their heads turned and their feet down, their wings in different positions, their wingtips in different positions, letting them, you know, make different passes because you know you got them. And it takes a long time to get there. And you acquire these different skill sets and these different levels of skills. And all of a sudden, you get yourself involved in these hunts to where that's when it becomes so addicting, in my opinion, is when you put it all together and you spent years throwing all these oils at this blank canvas. And now all of a sudden this masterpiece is there and you're like, man, I, I scouted them. I know where the roosts were. 
My decoy spreads look realistic. I'm making ripples on the water. I'm creating the chocolate milk effect with muddy water because ducks are so active and they're always kicking up the sediments. My blind was well prepared. I took really a lot of pride in my concealment and, and matching the existing vegetation. And then you might have a dog. You might have to become a better boat operator. You have to know your gun safety. You have to know how to, then you got the vocalization and what you said, talking to the birds and having a conversation with them and, and getting them to entrust in you and deceiving them. And, and there's so much that goes into it. And I think it's just different levels to where once I got to the point of seeing it done that way, I could never imagine sneaking up on a, a bunch of ducks and, and shooting them on the water, letting them get up. But I get what you're saying. It's like it's different levels, and you graduate from one to the next almost. Well, that's very well stated, and it's a, it's a process. And, you know, you become an expert, they say, if you do something uh, for 10,000 hours, you can become a professional. Uh, I'm not saying that I ever was striving for that, but I wanted to do it right and I derived so much satisfaction and still do. I still get a huge charge out of seeing it work right. Well, we were beautifully camouflaged. We had our heads down, but we kept our eyes on the birds. And uh, uh, passing that sort of education along to people is is very, very rewarding. And it's uh, something that... Uh, is uh, it's special it's very very special it really is they're, they're awfully good eating also we've uh, uh, been enjoying uh, a lot of these nice corn-fed birds that come out of nebraska and certain spots and uh, uh, some of these uh, breasted out birds of fillets are just really really great and uh, uh, you know the big question with people is uh, of course, we give away a lot of birds, and uh, people say, "Are they cleaned?" And I learned that uh, if you want to, you know, place your birds uh, in a good spot, you have to do a little labor. So we breast out all the birds. We keep it legal with one wing on, and all that sort of thing tagged. And then we uh, we'll just give somebody, you know, a half a dozen duck breasts, and or they come back to. That's the best duck I've ever had, but you know they have to learn that yeah, it's worth cleaning them up properly and butchering them carefully, and uh, uh, we uh, we're pretty fussy about how we do it, and uh, it's just another aspect of the hunt. Great eating, a lot of beautiful sights, sounds, techniques. You know we have such good equipment today. Uh, you know. We can dress for it. We've got everything layered so that we can just be on the climate 100%. And it's it's very important with new hunters that uh, uh, we make their uh, trip. I remember taking my boys out. I'd always bring a thermos of hot chocolate and another, another uh, layer of clothing. And many a time, I'd take off some of my clothing and wrap it around one of my seven-year-olds and... Uh, uh, I've had both of my boys out there when they were four and five years old, you know, on dove hunts and things like that. And uh, uh, it grows. It grows. And I think that's the way we can pay back for the the lifetime that we've spent hunting is to share that with people, pass along that knowledge. And 
uh, keep looking forward to the next hunt. That's what we try to do. A lot of people that I've ran with, I've heard heard people say, man, I wish I could have hunted back in the glory days. I wish I could have hunted back in the golden era of hunting. I wish, uh, you know, back when the animals were plentiful. And, and then you, being at the stage in your life that you're at, you say the exact opposite, that we are in the golden age. This is the time to be a hunter. What, Ab- do, you mean, what do you mean by that? Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we have so much better equipment and so many things in our favor. Uh, we can talk about big game hunting. Uh, we have fast travel uh, uh, airlines can take you any place in the world and in 10 or 12 hours if you want to go to New Zealand or Africa wherever it is uh, we've got rifles that shoot very very accurately at extremely long range if that's our cup of tea we have optics in the form of spotting scopes and binoculars we have clothing that can take us to any temperature we desire uh, we've got footwear uh, we've got ammunition. All of these things make hunting today far easier than it was in the old days. And uh, we can back up that statement by looking at the logs. You know, uh, uh, England uh, was a great country for colonization, so they had uh, a military presence in India and Africa and different parts of the world, and the officers often did a lot of big game hunting. They kept good records, and they would say, well, we uh, have shot, located, and shot this animal, and that animal brought it back to the base for food, and the horns were approximately, you know, whatever the species was, so many inches. And today we're taking magnificent trophies. All the records are continuing to be broken uh, in waterfowl now, uh, look at the ammunition changes, the changes in calling, the changes in decoys. We have a robo ducks. Uh, we've got uh, water activators. We have ice eaters. So, we, hu- so humans is is a human being and is a hunter conservationist. We're in a better place now. Oh, absolutely. But what about the animals? What's your opinion on well, that? The animals uh, are uh, under much tighter control than there were before. There's no market hunting now. Uh, We may have less uh, in the way of population, and that's due to the increase in human population. Habitat's been reduced, so the resource has got to be more carefully managed. Uh, Right here in Montana, uh, we are on the Bitterroot River uh, one of the most fished trout streams in the United States. Uh, it's highly regulated. The number of boats that go down the river is now starting to be organized. Uh, uh, limits, uh, catch and release programs. Uh, we're doing a lot of things to offset the slowdown in wildlife growth. But there are still a lot of fine animals, a lot of places to hunt. It's easier to get to them. People would go to Africa before. They'd have to take off for like four or five months to make a trip. There was no jumping on the plane. People were going on a steamship, and then they would have to be uh, portered in with 25 or 30 people carrying their camp and their equipment. Now they go in, and somebody takes a charter flight, and 
two days, they can be in Tanzania or Mozambique or the Cameroons hunting. So today is really a, a wonderful time to be hunting. It's much more expensive than it was in the past, but our results and the experience are just as good, if not a heck of a lot better than they were 50 or 60 years ago. I've had no problem determining that there's a good opportunity to have some successful and wonderful experiences. We're really privileged to have had this opportunity. We're passing through at the right time. So with the success of the different animal populations, um, not just in America, but in other parts of the country, hunters have, and correct me on any of this if I'm wrong or going down the wrong road, but hunters have helped in areas like Africa with protecting animal populations with, um, you know, against poaching. They've helped different areas in countries like Africa or Asia with the income or the amount of money being spent in hunting helps those, those economies over there. Um, and then stateside where we live, as far as the amount of money that hunters spend, you hear the word ultimate conservation is thrown around a lot. Um, animals from turkeys to the ducks in the flyways to the Rocky Mountain elk population with the protection from, you know, whether it's predation, predator management, the controlling of wolves, um, a lot of things that are put into effect or into, you know, that become initiatives are, are, are because of hunters. Do you, do you feel that hunters are the ultimate conservationists? Do you feel that we do our part? Um, and where I'm going with that, Mr. John, is that we're not killers, right? We're not just out there to see an animal die. The amount of compassion that we have for these animals, the respect that we have for these animals um, doing it for over 80 years, has that ever crossed your mind that you're not in it for the right reasons? Have you ever met a hunter you don't like? Have you ever met a duck hunter you don't like? Um, is this the best lifestyle to be involved in because we're, we're well-rounded and we understand what it means to take care of an animal that we, we, the, you, do you know where I'm going with that? Well, I think I, I'll answer the first question, uh, do we feel that, uh, conservation uh, via the hunter has been important Absolutely. It was important several years ago, and it's more important today. Uh, we have witnessed several wonderful conservation uh, uh, projects. I uh, know of one particularly uh, uh, in uh, the area of uh, uh, mid-Asia, uh, not only Mongolia, but uh, uh, Tajikistan, in some of the eastern countries, Pakistan particularly, uh, there's a big human explosion. There's a population explosion. Uh, predation and the decline is dictated by the fact that populations in Africa have increased. People are hungry. And unless certain procedures are established, uh, human use of game animals for a food supply will destroy and eliminate those populations. So via hunter participation in the form of uh, uh, special conservation issues is saving these populations. There's a program called the Togar Hills uh, that took place uh, in uh, western Pakistan Local people realized 
that all of the game animals were being killed for food. Pretty soon there weren't many. A Markor population in one area, the one that we had talked about earlier, was down to several hundred animals. And they decided that, uh, well, they would stop and make it a crime to be taking these animals for food supply. And in turn, the program would issue hunting permits where the money that was received would be distributed through the community. It's a community project. And as opposed to a couple of families going out and killing some animals that were consumed in their regular diet, they abstained from that, resorted to other food sources, but then received a dividend in the form of a proration of the money that was spent for permits that are are rather expensive. Uh, That population in the Togar Hills went from near extinction to several thousand animals. So in the face of hunting activity, uh, the hunter himself is not, quote, killing off the population. He's enhancing it through a cash payment so and through education. And uh, I think Africa, I don't think, I know in Africa, a lot of money has been donated by hunting organizations, Safari Club International, uh, uh, shot shows, they're all big supporters of various conservation issues. So it's a real lifesaver. If it wasn't for hunter involvement, uh, there would be continued poaching of elephants and rhinos for esoteric reasons and uh, for uh, human consumption. And uh, that's a big, big battle. And as populations continue to increase, uh, it becomes more serious and more important. But uh, hunters are really the salvation to the remaining populations in the world. But bear in mind that it's not the, the, the killing or taking, harvesting, however you want to refer to it, uh, by hunters. It's human interference for food or commercialization. And I'll give you one example. Uh, when we were in the trophy room, you asked a question about a, uh, a, uh, a group of uh, uh, wildebeest in a photo, and you asked, what, what are these tails? And I had a, a, a relic here from uh, uh, Africa that I picked up from one of the uh, local natives there, and it was a tail of a wildebeest that was used uh, for a fly swatter. Very typical, you see these lo- local tribesmen with one of these wildebeest tails swatting flies or insects around them. Well, from a commercial standpoint, uh, uh, in the country of Botswana, uh, there was uh, a group of uh, uh, entrepreneurs, if you will, who offered the natives a very small amount of money for any wildebeest tails that they could uh, pick up. Well, snares were set out and wildebeest were stampeded over these snares. Many of them were killed. Many of them were mortally wounded or damaged. And these tails were 
purchase for just a few cents, just a few cents, 15, 20 cents a tail. And uh, that killed hundreds and hundreds of these animals. The hunters weren't involved in that slaughter in any way, shape, or form. A hunter goes to Africa and he kills one animal. A village goes out and they kill 200 animals. So these conservation programs, uh, anti-predator, uh, uh, anti-poaching groups, they have a big battle, but uh, indirectly, uh, hunters are the only ones through their financial support. I don't mean a donation out of pocket, but their participation in the sport where the larger corporations and individuals that can contribute. So that form of hunter conservation is a very, very important thing. I had talked with a gentleman who passed away a year and a half ago now. His name is Mr. Ken Hoffman in California. He was a, a big philanthropist. He was very successful in development through his career. Um, he had made a comment one time to me that I've never met a duck hunter I don't like. And in my last question, I mentioned that. And I understand that there's going to be certain instances in your in your travels and in the, in the groups you meet is that ring true to you is do you think hunting brings this solace to people to where we understand the 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 playing field that we're on we have a respect for other hunters um do you there is some ego involved in hunting you've seen it i've seen it you've probably have seen it way more than i have in your career but when you take the ego part out of it or the chump the 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 chest thumping I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think like all the places I go, man, I just love the people that you meet in camp and how much you have in common right away with them. What do you feel the same in a way, or do you think that you you still have to judge, obviously judge each person, you know, on an individual basis? Yeah, I, I would have to say that uh, uh, being totally honest and frank, I can't say that every duck hunter I've met is a great guy, but I will say, and I, I think you've hit on a very interesting point, once you share a successful mutual experience with someone, in other words, you and I are uh, on a trip uh, for stone sheep in northern British Columbia, we endure some hardships, we share a tent, uh, we're uh, cooking over an open fire, we're hunting together, we're spotting, stalking. When we come off of that trip, a very good friendship will usually ensue. Uh, I've uh, gone to places where there's no way in which I could communicate with my hunting guide except possibly through an interpreter, and if that's not available, it's sign language and just... Uh, a rapport and exchange of information. And when you leave, boy, you've made a real friend. You think, gosh, I wish I could meet that guy again. And I, I have done that. And uh, uh, you make some wonderful friends when you share an experience. But to say that all people who uh, share an interest in duck hunting are great folks. I think there are more of them that there are, fortunately, that are good people. But you're going to run across difficult individuals, egotistical invitations uh, uh, that are not uh, to your liking. And uh, I'm kind of fussy about 
who I hunt with, not that I'm a prima donna or anybody special, but I, I don't want to be hunting with anyone who's going to spoil my hunt in any way or impede it, such as someone who is excessively drinks in the evening, can't get up in time in the morning, and you're waiting 15 minutes. Where's, where's Joe? Well, he had a tough night, and he said he might join us later. No, here he comes now, but he's forgotten his gear and all of it. Uh, that would sour me on an individual. I've seen some of that, uh, uh, people who uh, don't treat uh, uh, everybody with respect. Uh, you can't help but want to shy away from that. And I've often used the expression, uh, many are called, but not all are chosen. So we meet a lot of hunters, but there's some that we would choose above others. And I'm sure you'd agree with me that, you know, where there's 10 people in the room, and they say, well, pick any two or three that you want to go hunting with you. You'd have some input on that. You say, yeah, I think I'll take you, you, you and you. So uh, it's human nature. We can't like everybody. We don't hit it off with anybody. But I think my bottom point is that if you share a wonderful day in the field or a wonderful week or a trip with someone and you're on the same page and by that I mean, mutual respect for each other uh, and a true sharing attitude, you'll come away with a great friend. I've had several outfitters that I've developed a friendship with. I know in one family, I've known three generations, granddad, Pop and his son, all hunters, very famous in Alberta, Canada, big game hunters, wonderful people. They're just friends. They've stayed at my home and visited us at the ranch on several occasions. And uh, uh, that happens, I can think of a dozen cases where these are the kind of people you'd like to have over for Thanksgiving dinner, if you know what I mean. But not everybody. So I like my saying about... Many of them are called, not all are chosen. Think about that. No, I like it. That's very interesting. It's cool to see two different points of view to where it'd be easy to say, yeah, I've never met a duck hunter I didn't like. But then you start thinking like, well, it's cool that he duck hunts. And I support that he duck hunts. But there might be some different, you know, some changes that you might make. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm sure people think that of me. And I'm sure people have thought that about you and the way that you are. And that's just the way life is. So if if you were, though, to share that experience with me or, you know, whoever you chose on that duck hunt, and you got to wake up or maybe the night before you got to build that hunt, and it, you knew that tomorrow was going to be, you know, a special day and you wanted it to be special, tell me what that hunt is for you. I'm not saying that, hey, it's your last hunt of all time and you get to, what 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 hunt would you, where would you want to be? What are the conditions? And I'm talking waterfowl hunting here. What are the conditions? What are the species? Where's the location? What time of year is it? Paint the picture for me that really gets your crank turning, um, you know, as far as being a waterfowl hunter goes. Well, uh, that's a multifaceted question, but uh, uh, let's just say a, a great waterfowl hunt for me would be uh, in an area where we had ducks and geese because that's going to give us two different patterns and as far as 
as the bird species concerned, I would say because of its prevalence and its adaptation to more general deal, let's just say that we're going to be on a mallard hunt, and I'd like to say, well, I think we've got a great spot, and it could be in Alberta, it could be in the Pinoak forests of Arkansas, it could be on the Platte River in Nebraska, it could be in the Butte Sink area of California, it could be in the Columbia River Basin of Washington, the Snake River. Was my question multifaceted, or oh, is your answer multifaceted? Oh, no, you 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 <laughs> told me to create the perfect hunt, and were, and at the time of the year, I was listening raptly to that, and uh, uh, I would say uh, a December January time frame, mallards or pintails in any of those locations, and uh, uh, a good retriever, and a nice set of equipment, uh, um, mojos, uh, good quality decoys, and a well-constructed uh, stand-up or a, or a pit blind. I would say that's the ingredients for a pretty good hunt. And I think you have to agree with my location. So aren't those the places to go? Oh, yeah. The Butte Sink, Columbia River Basin. What's the sky look like? Well, I... Uh, I'm not an advocate that, well, bad weather, this is a duck day. I've had an awful lot of wonderful days uh, with, I think, wind is a prevailing factor. I've had days uh, when it's a bright, cold day with with a high wind, beautiful, and I've had a lot of days in a snowstorm or right after when the birds are really hungry. So uh, weather we can't control, we have to get what we take. But uh, I'm back to your question. Greenheads, chocolate heads, good blind, good dog, in any one of those spots. One spot that's, you know, no two days are ever the same. Uh, how many times have we heard, well, yesterday we were right up the river 100 yards and Everybody got their limit by 8.30. Here it is, 10 o'clock, and I think we're about ready to call it a morning. Let these birds work back in, those that are here, and we'll try it again tomorrow. So uh, that's, that's my scenario for a perfect tent. You and Robin? Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Or one of my boys, you know, if somebody couldn't make it. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty fussy about that, really. I... I I don't like a group any bigger than four, really, and uh, it's only because there's always a lot of competition. You know, everything came in on their end of the blind, or you, you, you can't win. You yeah. can't win. I don't know why he didn't call the shot then. I could have gotten a couple of them right over me, and uh, you know that position because you're in it all the time. You want to try to fix it up so that everybody can take a crack at a bunch. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Sometimes it's only the guy on the extreme outside that can take that shot. So it's a, a delicate proposition, but at best, we'll go back to your saying, this life ain't for anyone, buddy. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> it just won't. It it's won't. it's not, and it's, it's, it's so hard to to answer that question like 
Well, I first thing that comes to my mind is being in the Pin Oaks, like you said, down in Arkansas, just because I just there's just something about the culture of Arkansas duck hunting and the Grand Prairie and the flooded timber and, and everything. But there also is, you know, being on the Platte River in Nebraska and, and scouting and having an opportunity for you know Canada geese, mallard ducks, pintails over water. You can go out in a cornfield and decoy thousands of mallard ducks over dry corn at the same possibility you know the same opportunity of turning the mojos off when you see a flock of canadas and flagging at them and getting them to commit and put those big black feet down and you know those and just getting all those there's just so much about that time of year um I love I love summer. I love the beach. I love being on a boat with a cold beer and some music and some buddies. And I get you know it, as a waterfowl hunter though, what I was I was having this conversation the other day is, and it might have even been on the podcast, but it's almost like we look so forward to duck season and you might be a different case because you're hunting year round a lot of your life you've hunted in in the summer months in america you're down in argentina or you're chasing a sheep over in asia where a lot of hunters in america look forward to that maybe late august if you're an archery antelope hunter through now you know march if you're a spring snow goose hunter and then you have turkey season in the spring but it's almost like we want that so bad that we quit living in the months of, of, of April, May, June, July, August. And you're just like, man, I can't wait for opening day. I can't wait for opening day. And I'm like, man, just slow down, pump the brakes. You know, you gotta, you gotta find solace in this time of the year too, whether you're practicing your duck call or training your dog or getting your boat motor tuned up. There's a lot of things you can do throughout summer, quote unquote, the dog days of summer to keep that fire burning. But I, it's almost like we get so geared up towards the hunting season that we don't live the other months out because we're looking so forward to seeing that migration start. You know, does that make sense to you? Well, it sure does. Everybody uh, uh, develops a case of the blues, uh, uh, and not everybody, you know, is able to get the time and uh, uh, have the ability to to go to different places. Uh, uh, you know, we have all heard the fact that it's always duck season somewhere. And uh, that, that makes it a nice thought. But from a practical standpoint, I sure agree that there's a lot of preparation that has to take place uh, to get ready for it. And uh, I guess if uh, we were doing it every day, although it's not a bad idea, but a lot of people from a practical standpoint just can't get away from raising a young family, for instance. Uh, uh, and I admire the people that you know, select to do something in the great outdoors, whether it's hunting or fishing or hiking or camping with the family. Uh, uh, we all can't be golfers, fly fishermen, or, or duck hunters, but uh, uh, those that are hunters can certainly uh, prepare well for if it's, you know, cleaning up decoys or uh, tuning up uh, uh, their calls. Those are all things that are going to make the forthcoming hunts and the forthcoming season much more successful. Preparation is a big thing. Big time. And I think where I was going along with it more along the lines of what you talked about getting the blues is like you get the duck blues in the summer months and trying to get through it, waiting on Canada open if you're going north across the border. But I've gotten better at 
knowing that it's coming and I can't wait for it. I love it. Every year people are, well, do you still enjoy it? You work in it. Do you still look forward to the season? I'm like, yeah, more than ever. I just love it more and more every year. I'm 44 now, and I think I look at it like I, every season is amazing to me and the things that I get to experience. But through duck hunting and the network that I've been lucky and humble enough to build through the mallard duck, I give you know him the credit for most of this because he. I really feel like we merely exist in a duck's world, and I've met so many good people that now I get to enjoy you know, opportunities or experiences or trips or different, you know, different locations, um, you know, all throughout the year. I might get invited to go fish off the coast of Fort Lauderdale in Florida, the Bahamas or the Dominican Republic. And I look back on, I'm like, the only reason I got invited on that is because of my passion for the mallard duck and the, the culture of waterfowl hunting and hunting and being an American hunter. So it's opened up so many doors to where I get invited just to go wakeboarding now in a summer lake in Indianapolis because it's with a dog trainer that likes the show and we, we hit it off as friends like you and I did. I get to come up to Montana in July and sit in this beautiful home looking over this beautiful mountain range, getting ready to go to loggers days down on Main Street. Tomorrow we're going to hike up to the falls and we're going to swim with the kids and you and Robin and and that's all because of mallard ducks. We met in a lodge because of a mallard duck, our passion for it. And I just think that that's so cool. And I know golfers can say it. Well, I met this guy on the 18th green. He invited me on his boat. There's just something about duck hunting and being, you know, getting in, getting to enjoy this culture and this lifestyle. That's, it's so humbling. And it, it is, it, it's really truly a privilege. And, you know, listening to you talk, if you take the entitlement part out of it, like, hey, these are, I shot all these ducks or, you know, I called them into my side of the blind. If you take all that out of there and you look at the bigger picture of what it means, then I, I think that that's what I'm trying to get across here is like, man, look at what I get to experience because of the respect and the compassion for the mallard duck. Well, it's, it's a well-stated position and I understand exactly where you're coming from on that and uh, I would say translating the same thought, uh, expressing it in a different way. Uh, uh, I was involved in a pretty heavy, stressful uh, business career, uh, worked at it for 53 years, underlying the most important thought in my mind was, gosh, if I do well enough in this assignment, I'm going to be able to do a lot of hunting. And that was my motivation. I wasn't trying to impress anyone or uh, be in the newspapers as a business uh, uh, tycoon or anything like that. I wanted to work hard, do my job, uh, pay my way, and I wanted to be able to indulge myself in hunting. From a personal standpoint, uh, I try to uh, maintain decent habits. I'm not out of control on drinking or drugs or gambling or uh, anything uh, of that nature. Uh, uh, I believe in doing the right thing. I'm uh, undoubtedly heavily family-oriented, and I'm 100% hunting-oriented. And at this stage of my life, probably the high 90% of my hunting interests revolve around waterfowl. It's just that simple. Very simple philosophy, family and hunting, lots of hunting. That's what I like to lots do. Lots of ducks. I love it. Yeah. And look at what the 53-year career brought you, your work ethic, your 
your attention to detail, your commitment to excellence, your, you know, living by the key things in life. I think like organization is the key to success. I think transparency and honesty and communication, becoming a good listener, becoming coachable, trying to take something away from the work day or the task, the task at hand every day and, and going home and breaking it down. If you're going to go hunting, read up on the species that you're going to chase. Try to become one with that animal. If you are taking on a new position, try to be the best at it that you can possibly be. Um, it's, it's not, it's one thing to go through the motions and get that participation award, but it's another thing to actually develop that sense of accomplishment on a daily basis, set short-term goals, set long-term goals, figure out how to accomplish them to where you can build it into bigger things. Be smart and do things in moderation. Don't abuse anything, whether it is alcohol or the nightlife or the partying or the gambling or, or, um, you know, you say those kind of words and I've never done a drug in my life. I don't do drugs. I drink, I drink some whiskey once in a while, drink a cold beer once in a while. I don't gamble. I have living in Nevada, being around Vegas, but I don't, I've never gotten caught up into it. I've had some smokeless tobacco in my lip, but I've never gone to that, that point of like, I got to have it. I got to have it can after can. So I think what you say rings true with me. And I, I like to become a sponge and soak up everything that you're saying. So I can go back and apply some of it and take a little bit from this guy that I met and take a little bit from John LaMonaco and say, Hey, I want to live that kind of life to where when I'm 89, you know, hopefully I do get to that point with my genetics, who knows what's going to happen. I don't know what your genetic background is. You might, be outliving your family. But um, if I do get the opportunity to do it, I want to be 89 and get to go to Dillon, Montana and hunt greenhead ducks and, and, and still be, you know, able to do that. And I think that if you live life right and you have that positive outlook and a lot of optimism and you treat people the right way. I think that it can happen, but, and I'm not saying that you, it won't happen if you don't live that life the way that you lived it. But I think that there's a lot to be taken out of that. And I appreciate the opportunity to learn from you and to know that there, you know, you can keep, keep those same core set of values and, and, and become build a life that you don't need the celebrity. You don't need the stardom. You don't need the financial richness. You just have to make sure that you do things right, treat people right and, and, and have fun along the way. Well, that's, that's such a healthy outlook, and I guess I like it because it parallels uh, my thoughts on it. And, you know, we have to realize that it's a relatively short trip here on Earth for all of us, all of us. Uh, I don't know of anyone that's come back for a second trip, so it's incumbent upon us to really get the most out of life every single day and uh, uh I uh, just really hope that uh, there are a lot of individuals that uh, have uh, enjoyed what hunting has brought to me. It's just been a, a high point in my life, and it just all boils down to what I've said a couple of times. Your values have to be identified, and for me, it's my family and hunting. And I have to say that through hunting, I uncovered a fabulous opportunity to get into the corporate world, and uh, I spent over 41 years working for a gentleman that I met through hunting. And imagine that. I was in Mexico drinking a cool beer after a tremendous day of dove shooting and getting ready to cook up a bunch of dove poppers wrapped in jalapeno and bacon, and we started talking about a few business entities. 
that led to a meeting and it led to a career of over 41 years in the corporate field. That's what I meant with opening doors and, and, and seeing the value in something. And it happens, it's, it's really easy to get around a campfire at duck camp or dove camp in South America or Mexico or America or Canada, wherever it is. And, and a lot of things have happened because of that. I just think it's such a special lifestyle and a special culture and a special way to live. And, you know, you talk about the way you were, and then you made comments about my nine, my eight-year-old nephew, Chase, the last couple of days. And you see the passion in his eyes and the go of, of wanting to go down the hill and fish. And he wants to go hunt, and he wants to catch this lizard. And and and, and that's how we were. We, we were just so gung-ho about it. And I'm thankful that it never left. I'm thankful to see, you know, guys like my brother, Race Chase, that way and uh, with our help and my daughter, Alyssa, loves to eat mallard duck. She hasn't gotten to the point right now to where she's ready to pull the trigger on an animal, but she loves shooting. She loves tipping over a can and plinking around the mountains of Nevada or wherever we're at. And she loves being outdoors. They're all just nonstop about it. And she blows a duck call. She can do a Canada goose call with her mouth, and it sounds very authentic. And so I just love all, all everything that comes because of the hunting lifestyle. And I wouldn't be sitting here right now in July of 2019, you know, with this view and this vista and and knowing what hard work and, and learning from you brings, then, you know, I, I attribute it to hunting. I wouldn't have met you if it wasn't for hunting. I don't meet everybody in my life because of hunting. But I, I, I accredit hunting of giving me the lifestyle to be able to go and do the things that I get to do and meet all of these different people and hear all of these different stories and have the opportunity to tell my story. And, and, and hopefully our brands, you know, flourish off of that. We've had a good run with, with Bandit and, and, and the Foul Life and now Jargon and this, this, this Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. And I think that um, it's, it gives me motivation every day and I'm even more motivated now to, to build the brands bigger, to see, you know, what hard work and commitment did for you and your family. I want that. And for somebody to say they wouldn't want that, I think is kind of crazy because I, I don't, I think hard work brings it. I think we were put on this earth to work hard and you did, and you, you set your values with family and hunting and you, you reached a lot of goals because of your commitment to that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, we could say that we're both extremely fortunate, and I'm very thankful that we can share and have this opportunity to interface and discuss various aspects of what we really love in life. And it's not every day that I can meet up with someone, and that's why we fostered this relationship that speaks the language, who has lived through this thing every day and although there's a big difference in our our age span uh we've uh, walked in the same shoes and on the same trail yes and, uh, the footsteps are paralleling and uh, i certainly want to thank you for including me in some of your programs and your thoughts and uh, i've uh, enjoyed uh, uh, this opportunity immensely and i'm looking forward to uh, our trails crossing regularly, and one of my little uh, objectives is to uh, uh, see if I can uh, hone out the details on a, another choice spot that I'm working on, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, you can be my guest on one of these hunts. Uh, I would love to close by. We're gonna we're gonna work on that, and if uh, all the pieces uh, fall in, it'll be my pleasure to give you a call and. Thank you so much for 
letting me participate in your programs. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And thank you for everything, John. And that's a a great way to end it right there, guys. Look for John on Instagram. His stories, his photos are awesome. At John J. LaMonico. He has two books. Um, Are they available for the public? Yes, they are. uh, What are the names of them? uh, Hunting Lifetime and Passions Continue. Passions Continue. They're both about 300 pages. Uh, They have between 250 and... 500 high-grade photos uh, showing some really fine trophy animals uh, taken by good friends and myself. And uh, uh, for anybody that's a hunter, I've I've sold quite a few uh, uh, copies uh, uh, from time to time. Everyone's enjoyed it. Uh, I always tell people, if you can look me in the eye and say, well, gee, I didn't get much out of the book Boy, I, I'll see to it that you're happy, but everybody's been very happy. And uh, Oh, they're awesome books. Yeah, Picture think, books, a lot of stories in them. But, I mean, just to see where your career took you, uh, it's, it's unbelievable well, to see some of those trips. Well, it's kind of fun to look back on it. And uh, uh, I remember when my uh, hunting outfit was a pair of uh, Army fatigues that were outdated or a pair of wool pants and... Uh, a uh, redhead uh, hunting jacket, and that was it. And uh, I stood in uh, many a pond uh, without waders on because I had to get to that spot. But uh, there's been a lot of changes, and we're looking forward to having, well, another uh, great uh, hunting season in North America. I can't wait. Thank you, John LaMonico. You guys check out his books, check out his Instagram, and look for John LaMonico on a couple upcoming episodes of The Foul Life Season 11 brought to you by Benelli. Benelli USA, in my opinion, the best shotguns on the market. Benelli's The Foul Life airing right now on the Outdoor Channel. John will be on some upcoming episodes around late September, early October from the great state of Kansas. Mitch Yoder and the crew at Kansas Hunts. We had a great time. Kansas can be spectacular for lesser Canada's, big Canada's, puddle ducks, the Arkansas River, the agriculture, the cornfields, the winter wheat there. Um, Kansas is just a, uh, just a great place if you have a passion for hunting, whether it's whitetail, predators, turkeys, and ducks and geese. I love being in Kansas. I'm going to click my heels and hopefully I get back there to Dorothy soon. So look for those episodes coming up. Thank you again to all of our partners here at The Foul Life. Thank you so much for the support of our brands, Banded, Avery, Avery Sporting Dog, The Foul Life, This Life Ain't For Everybody, and Jargon Duck Calls. We're so humbled by the support, the continuous support. Thank you guys very much for that. In today's episode, again, was brought to you by the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. Go to nawtc.com and get signed up. It was also brought to you by our friends at Oakley Sunglasses and Oakley Standard Issue Sunglasses. Best eyewear, in my opinion, on the market. Support them. Everything they do for the outdoors, whether it's hunting, fishing, as well as their support of our military is above and beyond any other aspect that they do with the great quality of product that they provide to all of us. And last but not least, real tree camouflage patterns real tree outdoors real tree brand camo family friends in the outdoors thank you mr bill jordan tyler jordan and everybody down in georgia thank you for your continuous support of our hunting culture in america and across the world wear camouflage guys wear real tree that's all i got to say john lamonico thank you again very much we are headed to logger days in darby montana can't wait to get down there and then we are going to probably participate in a little bit of a wild game taco bar i'm going to try to talk john 
down and do a little bit of his duck meat out of his freezer so we can have duck tacos tonight maybe a couple duck empanadas that we learned how to do down in argentina and uh, we're also going to do some pork loin tonight on the traeger so i appreciate it john this has been another exciting episode of this life ain't for everybody tom rashashin our great producer thank you all very much again hit that button tom this this is a song by leith lofton and drake white performed by leith lofton what you gonna do when the money's all gone thank you all life on earth won't last too long so what you gonna do when the money's all gone i'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul life on earth won't last that long what you gonna do when the money's all gone say life on earth won't last that long what you gonna do when the money's all gone